launched an investigation. You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 3rd of May. Welcome back to Money Talk on Radio 3 after the long weekend. This is Peter Lewis with a catch-up of the business headlines. HSBC is under mounting pressure to break up after its largest shareholder, Chinese insurer Ping An, told the bank to split its Asian and Western operations, according to the Financial Times. Ping An, China's largest insurer, owned 8% of the lender at the end of 2021 and has reportedly told HSBC that a separate Asia-listed unit would create shareholder value. On Monday, Ping An said in a statement, We support a debate about the future of the bank. We want shareholders to participate in the debate and to propose solutions for HSBC. Ping An supports all reforms and proposals from investors that can help help HSBC's operations and long-term growth. China's economic activity contracted sharply in April, with factory activity falling to the lowest level in more than two years. The official manufacturing PMI dropped to 47.4 from 49.5 in March. The non-manufacturing gauge for the construction and services sector plunged to 41.9 from March's 48.4, hitting the lowest level since February 2020. Beijing has ramped up its COVID-19 restrictions with additional testing requirements and restaurant dining was banned from Sunday with eateries only able to offer takeaway services. Beijing reported 36 new local symptomatic and 5 asymptomatic cases on Monday for May the 1st. The city announced it would further restrict access to public spaces after the holiday period and a negative COVID test taken within the past 48 hours will be needed to enter all kinds of public areas and to take public transport. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by James Wong at Leeds Securities and Quentin Webb from the Wall Street Journal. With a view from Japan is Maxime Darmit of Fitch Ratings. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3 in a volatile session on Wall Street, the S&P 500 and Nasdaq Composite hit new lows for the year before rebounding in the final hour of trading ahead of the Fed's monetary policy meeting, which starts later today. The S&P 500, which recorded its worst month in over two years in April, was down 1.7% at the low of the session, but recovered to close 0.6% higher at 4,155. And the S&P 500 is down almost 13% so far this year, its worst start to a year since 1939. The Dow regained losses of over 500 points to close 84 points firmer at 33,062. The Nasdaq Composite Index, which tumbled 4% on Friday, bringing an end to the worst month for the tech-heavy index since October 2008. That was during the global financial crisis. We covered some of the lost ground yesterday. It ended the session 1.6% higher at 12,536. The Pan-European Stock 600 index slid as much as 3% before trimming its losses to trade 1.5% lower. A sell-off earlier in the session was triggered by a large erroneous transaction made by Citigroup's London trading desk. 
Hong Kong and mainland China markets were closed yesterday for the Labor Day holiday. Trading resumes today in Hong Kong and will restart on Thursday on the mainland. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is half a percent firmer at $107.64 a barrel. Gold is 1.7% lower at $1,863 an ounce. The yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury note touched 3% for the first time in more than three years on Monday and doubled its level at the start of the year. By the close, it had slipped back slightly, ending the day four basis points higher at 2.98%. And the U.S. dollar index, which measures the currency against a basket of six others, rose 0.4% to just below the 20-year high it reached last week. The euro this morning is trading at $1.05. The buck's at 130.2 Japanese yen. One British pound buys almost $1.25 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 80 cents. Chinese yuan is trading at 6.67 and a half in offshore markets. In April, the yuan saw its biggest monthly drop against the dollar since January 1994. And around Asia, it's a public holiday today in mainland China, Japan, Singapore and India. In the markets in the region that are open, the SX200 in Australia is down 0.2%. Uh, the Cosby is open flat and futures markets pointing to a fall of about 220 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. It's 8.08 and a half on the phone this morning. We have with us James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Leeds Securities. Morning, James. Good morning, Peter. And over in our Queensway studio, Quinton Webb, Asia Markets Editor at the Wall Street Journal. Morning, Quinton. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with the, uh, the data from China over the weekend. <clears throat> Economic activity contracted sharply, uh, with factory activity down to the lowest level in more than two years. The official manufacturing PMI hit 47.4, down from 49.5 in March. The non-manufacturing gauge plunged to 41.9 from 48.4 in March. That's the lowest level since February uh, 2020. Uh, the PMI showed the new export sub-index plunging deeper into contraction to its worst level in nearly two years, while the import sub-index was the lowest since February 2020. Suppliers faced the longest delays in more than two years in delivering raw materials to their manufacturing customers and inventories of uh, finished goods rose to the highest level in more than a decade as products stacked up in warehouses because of the slump in demand and difficulties in transporting goods. Um, Quincy, maybe you want to kick off. This this is not a recession, but it's starting to feel like it, isn't it? With a lot of people, a lot of new graduates struggling to get a job, business confidence dropping uh, off a cliff, imports plummeting, um, and, and Chinese people stocking away more savings. It's, it's sort of almost recessionary behaviour, isn't it? That's right. Um, so it's very rare for China to exper- experience a kind of classic recession, if you like, which is two consecutive quarters of shrinking growth. But a lot of economists now are starting to talk about Um, what's called a growth recession, which is a sort of significant slowdown that stops short of that technical definition. That certainly seems to be where we're headed now. Maybe hard to tell exactly from the official data because some of the economic data looks surprisingly strong. But if you look at things like the PMIs, which are a bit higher frequency, 
if you look at sort of indications of how many people in the migrant labour force haven't gone back to work, for example, it looks pretty bad. James, what are your thoughts? Does, do you think the economy is going to contract or could it even go into a recession if these lockdowns continue? A self-inflicted recession, I would add. Uh, I, I think from the uh, satellite images that uh, <clears throat> two companies that have gathered, uh, I think, until April 12th, uh, it shows that uh, the manufacturing activities are not actually not shrinking and uh, neither does consumption, which is a surprise. And the only two sectors that were hit hard by the uh, COVID-0 policy were construction projects and uh, uh, logistics. And uh, logistics are the most important things that we are concerned about right now. And uh, from what we know, uh, the the capabilities of of logistic chains in the Yangtze River Triangle is probably at about 40 to 50 percent of its its peak. So I don't know how long it's going to take for the logistics to to get back to normal i don't i don't think the other sectors of the economy has been hit that hard at least until uh, april 12. now before the data was uh, released a politburo meeting on friday urged policymakers to ramp up economic support measures and the top leadership said it was still determined to meet the ambitious gdp growth target of around five and a half percent while at the same time sticking with its covid zero policy to curb inf- uh, infections and uh, the Politburo called for measures including quickly implementing already budgeted government spending and loosening uh, monetary policy. And the meetings also suggested the clampdown on the technology and property sectors uh, could be nearing an end. Uh, Quentin, a lot of attention was placed on this Politburo meeting on Friday in the hope that they would announce measures to stabilise the economy. Did they come up with the goods? Well... Uh, some of it looks good. You know, certainly the market was excited about the sense that the tech crackdown might be finally nearing an end. Um, but as you suggested, there's this sort of complicated balancing act going on here where at the same time, you know, policymakers want to shore up growth, but they also don't want to kind of go back to unrestrained infrastructure spending as in the mm. previous years. And they also don't really want to abandon this zero COVID target. And these things are almost kind of contradictory impulses to try and manage at the same time. So it's a bit of an open question about whether you can do all of these things at once. And some of the detail here is a little bit less positive than the headlines. So, for example, you know, one of the things that seems exciting is that there's going to be a meeting with the big tech companies reportedly in the coming days. Um, So it seems like the authorities are starting to soften their stance. At the other side, you know, my colleagues at the Journal have reported that one of the things that might be floated at this meeting is the idea that the government would take strategic stakes in more of the tech companies. So Mm. that's not a kind of, you know, unashamedly market positive move. Uh, So we really do need to see what follows from this. And we've also been here before, you know, in in March, um, Liu He sparked a rally by... uh, you know, sort of intervening to kind of stem this collapse in market confidence. But after that, you know, there was there was very little follow through and the market started selling off again. Um, James, are, are the two goals here that the Politburo mentioned, zero COVID and also meeting the five and a half percent growth target, uh, aren't they contradictory, uh, particularly with lockdowns potentially now spreading to Beijing as well? Yeah, I think lockdown has spread a lot more than just Beijing. It's spread from in- Inner Mongolia to 
the uh, the uh, per river triangle, and uh, I think more and more cities are adopting a policy that when they see one or few a few confirmed cases of COVID, they're going to lock up for at least five to seven days. And uh, this this again is uh, concerns us mostly is the uh, the logistic chain and the uh, the capability it is running at. And we think the uh, the the meeting actually the biggest difference in wording is. Like Quinn said, uh, the uh, the attitude towards those uh, tech platforms, and in the March 15th meeting and in the uh, July uh, in the in the April 13th meeting, we've seen Premier Li Keqiang and uh, Vice Vice Premier Liu He mentioned the word to uh, about uh, ending the uh, uh, regulatory reformation on tech platforms as soon as possible. But the wording. Uh, we've heard in the uh, <clears throat> in the meeting on Friday was about to end those mm-hmm. regulatory reformations. I think that's a big difference, and uh, I think the capital markets tend to interpret that difference very positively. And uh, like when said, I think the the more important thing is to watch to observe if there's any follow up meetings uh, that uh, can actually uh, soothe our concerns on tech platform reformations and uh, crackdowns on the uh, uh, real estate markets. Mm. Uh, Quentin, the, the problem is that there's limits to how much Beijing can do, isn't there? Because a lot of the factors are out of the government's control, like COVID, like soaring commodity prices, like slumping global demand. Um, th- th- this is all happening at the same time as these sort of global events are occurring as well. I think that's right. There's a sort of perfect storm of different factors building here. And, you know, some of that will constrain domestic policy as well. So perhaps one of the reasons why the People's Bank of China has been rather cautious in adding extra monetary stimulus is that, you know, the dollar is strengthening a lot against a lot of currencies. And whilst Chinese policymakers are maybe happy with a slightly softer currency. They don't want a complete collapse in the yuan, so they have to proceed carefully on that front. So with that and with the global economic backdrop and with sort of rising global rates, there's a lot of things in the mix that Chinese policymakers, as you say, can't directly address. Mm. Um, James, let me ask you about a comment from Wei Zhen Shah. He's the founder and chairman of uh, Asia's uh, one of Asia's biggest private uh, equity investors, they're Hong Kong-based, yes. managed about $50 billion. Uh, he said, uh, well, he's criticised the Chinese government for policies that he says have resulted in a deep economic crisis comparable to the global financial crash. He says China's economy is in the worst shape in the past 30 years. He says market sentiment towards Chinese stocks is also at the lowest point in the past 30 years. And he says popular discontent in China is at the highest point in the past uh, 30 years. And in this video, which was seen by the Financial Times, he said Shanghai has been semi-paralysed by draconian zero-COVID policies that have impacted the economy, uh, have had a profound impact on the economy. And he says China feels to us like the US and Europe in 2008. What, what do you make of that? Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's very strange for us to him, for him uh, uh, with that kind of calibre make a make a bold statement like this. I think, I think Quinn said, well, Quinn said is right. Everything is building up to be a, a perfect storm. And, uh, I think the People's Bank of China is smart not to deploy a lot of, uh, web, uh, monetary 
policy tools at a time like this. They are saving their firepower for later time uh, because we we've seen PBOC uh, <clears throat> lowering the uh, forex uh, the re- uh, required uh, required uh, reserve ratio for forex for banks, and uh, this is I, I think this is more of a a, uh, a gesture than anything meaningful. Because uh, the, in the past we've seen this uh, this tool being used only five times over the, fa- the past uh, 14 years, and uh, n- none of the times that it really worked in the direction that uh, the PBOC has hoped for. And this time, I think the logic is a little bit of, is is even a little bit weaker because uh, when you raise a forex uh, reserve ratio, uh, it requires bank to acquire more forex positioning. To, and that is a, uh, a a requirement that the banks have to do. The, so by mm-hmm. doing that, banks can acquire more uh, U.S. dollars and uh, creating a short uh, interest in the market for RMB. So, but right now, if they are loosening this forex requirement, meaning banks have more uh, U.S. dollar positioning on their hands, but they don't necessarily need to buy RMB in them in that in the same logic that they were used to. Uh, they they were. Uh, forced to sell when the uh, rate was up. So this, uh, I think, the only way, only reason PBOC did this was to make a statement that they don't like RMB being shorted like this, and uh, mm-hmm. they made that statement before the BOJ and before uh, the the ECB. And I think that's going to help a little bit, but not that much. But again, it shows that PBOC is reluctant at this time to uh, deploy a lot of uh, monetary policy tools. Quinton, what, what do you make of Wei Jian Shen's uh, comments? It's very unusual, isn't it, for such a big investor who's very dependent on China to speak out like this, but he's saying uh, it's in its, China's economy is in its worst shape in the past 30 years. Do, do you think he's right on that? Uh, I'll just sidestep that for a minute, but I will say, you know, he's a very credible figure, and the reason it's mm. so notable is that, as you said, it's very unusual now to hear kind of candid assessments of China and the Chinese economy from from significant Chinese figures in finance. So so I think it should be taken seriously. Okay. Well, what about the Chinese markets? Uh, the Politburo released this, these, their comments on Friday during the market uh, trading, almost, if, if anything, to try and boost uh, shares. They got their, they got their wish, the, uh, the Shanghai Composite, which had been broadly flat on Friday, jumped to, uh, to be up 2.4% by the close. However, in the month of April, the index tumbled 6.3%, uh, taking its losses for the year to over 16%. Indices in Shenzhen have fared even worse. The Shenzhen Composite down almost 26% year to date. And the Chinex over 30%. But do you think now maybe we've seen the bottom with, with this latest uh, promise from the Politburo to, to act? Potentially, yes. You know, as we've seen over the years, China is a very policy-driven market. And so... If policymakers step up and and make a big intervention, as they have seemingly done on Friday, that can be enough to sort of change um, the direction a bit. But remember, we're in a kind of, I don't know how to phrase this, but a sort of synchronized global sell-off. <laughs> you know, you mentioned earlier the S&P is having its worst start to the year since 1939. U.S. bond yields have doubled this year. It's un- It's unusual to see kind of global stock and equity markets selling off at the same time. And that's the backdrop against which, you know, 
China is attempting to kind of restore some stability to its own markets. James, final word to you. Do you think with this uh, promise from the Politburo to try and stabilise the economy and also uh, this backing off now on the um, the clampdown on big tech companies or certainly an indication that it's uh, that it's going to come to an end, has that put a flaw now under the markets? Yeah, I think that's, uh, it's reassuring. And, uh, and uh, direct investment is another story, but I think in the capital markets, people are tending to believe that this is going to uh, make uh, help us uh, bottom up the... Uh, the, the greater China market, and and once we once we hit that bottom, I mean, foreign investors haven't have been selling uh, stocks quite aggressively in China. In fact, stocks and bonds as well. Do you think foreign investors this is going to tempt them back now? Yeah, I think money is going to. It's easier for money to move around. It's uh, harder to for for talents to move around. And there, if they see a, an opportunity that can make the money uh, in China more so than in the States or anywhere else, the, the money is going to come back pretty soon. Okay, great. Well, thank you both very much. It's James Wong, Chief Investment Officer and Managing Director at Lead Securities. Quinton Webb, who's Asia, Asia Markets Editor at The Wall Street Journal. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. It's 8.24 on the phone from Tokyo is Maxime Dom. It's Global and Asia-Pacific Economist at Fitch Ratings. Morning, Maxime. Good morning. Um, let me ask you about the yen. We've now hit a 20-year low, broken through the 130 uh, level last week. Still trading around there uh, this morning. Yep. Right now, the Japanese yen is at 130.2 against the dollar. Um, it's unusual, isn't it, this this fall in the yen? Because um, usually when markets uh, are rallying, the yen tends to weaken against other currencies. When markets get turbulent, people tend to buy it, but not this time around. Yeah, I think there's a combination of things now. Uh, so first of all, obviously, you've got the, the US Fed uh, becoming increasingly hawkish. And at the same time, the DOJ Bank of Japan is doubling down on its yield curve control. So yields in Japan are still stuck at uh, 0.25% for the 10-year yield. And last week, the DOJ said it would uh, buy an unlimited amount of bonds to keep uh, yield that low. So there's a sort of a doubling down of, of, uh, from the BOJ. At the same time, the, the Fed is becoming increasingly hawkish. So obviously, this is leading to... Uh, Increasing divergence in bond yields and in returns between between US, the US and Japan. This is the first thing. And the second thing also is related to the war in, in, in Ukraine and, and the sharp rise in commodity prices. And obviously, this is affecting the channel strength of Japan, which is which is worsening very very quickly, uh, much more so than in the US because the US is obviously a producer of commodity prices. So you've got these two factors. Uh, so sort of bad toxic combination weighing on the yen and as you said it's quite unusual mm. the, the, how does the bank of japan view it does it see the sliding yen as a problem or does it maybe see it as a as an opportunity because it's been trying to reflate the economy for about 30 years now maybe this will be the opportunity to do that yeah that's a very good question so uh the boj how can i mean yeah, we can hear you. Carry on. Ah, yes, sorry, yeah. yeah, no, I was saying, yeah, the BOJ uh, has been arguing for some time now that the sliding yen is actually good news for the economy. The BOJ does think that on net, the economy is benefiting from, from a weaker yen because it thinks it boosts exports, it can reflect the economy, as you said. And um, so, yeah, overall, it's, it's beneficial. 
However, we think this is not the case. The Ministry of Finance in Japan thinks this is not the case. The media as well. So pretty much everybody else disagrees. <laughs> and I think there are a couple of reasons to think that the yen is, uh, weak yen is actually detrimental for the economy. But we do think it's detrimental for the economy. The first is that in Japan, um, when you've got inflation externally driven, as it is the case currently, you've got very, uh, a very muted response from wages. So the wages do, do not take up. So, which means the, the loss, the loss of income, the loss of purchasing powers for household is very, is very sharp. It's even sharper than in Europe, for instance. So, uh, household would cut back spending uh, quite heavily. So, this, this is the first thing. And the second thing, uh, over the past decades, the reality that exports have been very unresponsive to the yen because Japanese businesses tend to produce sort of like high-end products, you know, mm. uh, for which the price is not really like the primary uh, thing. You know, it's more about the quality of the products. It's a bit like the German industry, right? So so, so the price is not really, uh, it doesn't matter that much. So the benefit you get on the export side is not that strong. Mm. But uh, the harm you get from on the household sector side, where, where wages are like not responding at all, uh, from increasing inflation is really huge. So on that, it's likely that a sliding yet a weak yen is, is clearly be, uh, detrimental for the economy. I've heard a lot of analysts say that um, they think the, the weak yen is, is good for companies because because of exports. But you're saying it's not it's not going to be such a big big factor. Yeah, you know the irony is actually the BOJ even itself has put out some charts showing showing that the export volumes are very little sensitive to the yen. So it's, again, it gets very little benefit from a falling yen on the export. And also, yeah, okay, I agree. Uh, maybe some some companies get the benefit of, a, of the weaker yen when they uh, when they sort of repatriate the profits in Japan because obviously the the value of the overseas overseas in their profits uh, gets gets bigger in in, uh, in yen terms, but this is only for the big companies, you know. Uh, for the SMEs, the small companies in Japan, they don't have overseas profits. Mm. So what they get is when the, the yen slumps, what they get, they only get like higher input input costs. And, pa- and part of this uh, highest, uh, higher input cost, they cannot pass it on to the consumer in Japan. So what's going to happen is going to squeeze the margins and it's going to hurt uh, the investment prospects. So this mm. is actually another channel which show that the, the weaker yen we think is detrimental for the economy. Well, we've seen the um, we've seen the U.S. Treasury yield go back uh, go back above three uh, percent uh, overnight in uh, in New York. Can the Bank of Japan keep this up with such a massive divergence now in monetary policy and in yields between Japan and the U.S.? Massive divergence, as you say, massive divergence. And actually, we thought that during the meeting of the BOJ last week, they could have done something. Uh, but no, they actually doubled down on, on their commitment to keep yields very low. Uh, we think it's getting increasingly, unst- um, over the long term, this policy is, is, uh, is likely to be tweaked a little bit at least. So we think maybe in the next meeting in June, they might give in a little bit to the market. So our best guess would be for the BOJ maybe to to lift the, the, the cap on yield maybe from 0.25% to 0.35%. Maybe just just do something about it, but it's not going to change the, the backdrop, which is again with widening divergence between U.S. bond yields and Japanese bond yields. So I would say the most likely outcome is that they don't do much. They don't do much within the next few, few months. And what's going to happen is the yen is going to slide, uh, probably hitting 140 
within the next next couple of months. It's something I would mm-hmm. definitely not rule out. Okay, Maxim, well, good to talk to you. Thank you very much. That's Maxim Domitz, who's Global and Asia Pacific Economist at Fitch Ratings. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. It's a holiday in Japan today, so no market activity. Down in Australia, the SX200 is down about 0.4%. The Cosby in South Korea, pretty flat at the moment. Uh, the Hang Seng looks like it's going to open about 220 points weaker later on this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Do stay tuned uh, for the news, followed by COVID updates with Jim Gould and Ada Wong. The weather forecast, mainly fine and dry. Maximum temperature is going to be around 25 degrees. And then it's going to be fine with temperatures rising in the next couple of days. Hot during the day in the latter part of this week. Uh, 21 degrees right now, 55% relative humidity. Times 8.31 and a half. Here's Andrew Shorosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. Health officials have warned more COVID infections could be uncovered as kindergartens and secondary schools resume face-to-face classes. Aaron Tam reports. The warning comes as Hong Kong's daily COVID caseload fell below the 300 mark for the first time in almost three months. Dr. Albert Au from the Center for Health Protection said there are still silent transmission chains in the community, adding that more COVID infections could be uncovered as students do rapid tests for the virus before they return to campuses. Of the 283 new infections, 120 were identified by PCR tests, while the remaining came from people who took self-tests. There were also 11 imported cases. Meanwhile, the hospital authority said another five COVID patients have passed away. John Lee, the sole chief executive candidate, has said it's crucial to gain public support for his governing philosophy. The former chief secretary said if elected, he plans to set goals for specific projects within 100 days of taking office. Speaking with the media, he was again queried about political reform and was asked why it wasn't a priority for him. It is not a priority issue for the six-term government. Uh, We have just been implementing uh, the third election uh, under the improved electoral system. So we should implement it well and then realize the benefits and potentials of the improved election system uh, so as to address all the pressing livelihood concerns uh, of society. Mr. Lee will hold a rally on Friday, two days before the vote. Only his advisors and election committee members are invited to the event. Television broadcaster TVB says that its mobile news app had sent a string of what it described as strange push notifications from midnight. Some of the notifications which it displayed on its website had claimed that Chief Executive Hopeful John Lee was meeting the press, while others said testing. The broadcaster said its IT department immediately launched an investigation into the matter to see if the system had been compromised, adding it also contacted the police. Overseas, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has condemned comments from Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, about Nazism and anti-Semitism, including claims that Adolf Hitler was Jewish. Russia's foreign minister openly and without hesitation said that the biggest anti-Semites were allegedly among the Jews themselves and that Hitler allegedly had Jewish blood. How could this be possibly said on the eve of the anniversary of the victory over Nazism? These words mean that Russia's top diplomat puts the blame on the Jewish people for Nazi crimes. I have no words. 
The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. 